Oh, hello friends. Welcome back to the Jack Ravel Show. Right, today I want you to get comfortable for this one. It's an epic episode full of inspirational takeaways, amazing insights and humbling stories of human endurance. My guest today is Cameron Bellamy, ultra endurance and adventure athlete from the beautiful city of Cape Town. He joins me to share the stories of his sporting adventures over the last decade. From not being able to swim more than the average person to a multiple Guinness World Record holder across many different sports, Cameron has taken the word endurance to a seriously new level. He's the first South African man to complete the Ocean's Seven, which is a marathon swimming challenge that covers seven straits between countries around the world. He has completed the impossible row through the Drake Passage, which takes you from the tip of South America to Antarctica. That's right, Antarctica. And if it wasn't for COVID, he would be attempting his next challenge of swimming unassisted 180 kilometers over Lake Isikul in Kazakhstan. Over the past decade, he has done all of these events to support his charity that he founded in 2011, the Ubani Challenge, which assists with early childhood development projects in rural South Africa and Zimbabwe. We discuss how to get into the mindset for even attempting those big, hairy, outrageous goals. Why embracing uncertainty and just going for it drives Cameron to keep pushing boundaries. We talk about his record of the longest continuous circumnavigation swim in history when he swam around Barbados, not once, but twice. We talk about how to prepare for a 56 hour swim nonstop what it feels like to be stung by box jellyfish, how to balance a life of endurance, why eating is almost impossible after 30 hours in the water, rowing through a hurricane, standing on the deck of a rowing boat during 40 foot waves, what it's like to swim naked in the Arctic Sea, being almost intercepted by pirates and hitting a blue whale, well, almost hitting a blue whale, and so, so much more. Cameron and I chat for about 90 minutes, but honestly, I could have gone all day. His humble personality combined with his passion leaves you on the edge of your seat wanting even more stories. I would like to mention that his charity, the Ubani Challenge, is a super cool project. And if you have some time to check it out, please do. The links will be in the show notes below. In other news, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone that listens to the show. It's amazing seeing the listen count go up every week and as I launch an episode you know this drives me to want to bring you even more content and even more amazing guests so if you haven't already please subscribe so that you never miss an episode but also share this episode with a friend it honestly helps to spread the word and give others a chance to get this awesome the awesome conversations in their ears so whether it's sending them in a whatsapp or posting on instagram just get it over to them they'll thank you later right Sit back and get ready for the wise and wonderful Cameron Bellamy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Jack Ravel Show. So today I'd love to welcome Cameron Bellamy onto the show. Cameron is an ultra endurance adventure athlete. Now I've taken some of those words from uh, him and other words I've made up myself, but he is from the beautiful city of Cape Town and he's here today to talk about 
his incredible adventures around the world that he's been up to for about the last decade and it's it's blown me away by what I found and uh, and I was, I've, I've been wanting to to chat to to Cameron for for a while about all of his uh, adventures um but welcome to the show Cameron thank you for being here yeah no, thanks Jack thanks for having me so before we get started I, I want to just sort of ask you what what are you up to at the moment with with COVID and and you know not being able to travel much and doing all your your swimming and cycling and rowing and all the other things you get up to what what what's going on right now for you at the moment yeah, so obviously um, COVID uh, put the brakes on um, the plans that I had last year, especially. And so I've been really focused and interested in doing a, a really amazing swim in Central Asia. I was going to try to swim across the lake uh, Issa-Kul, which is um, it's about 180 kilometers. And it's an, it'll be an unassisted swim, like same as English Channel rules. Um, and it's like it's Alpine Lake. It's, it's beautiful. I've actually cycled past it before before I could even swim. And um, that was that's been... An, that's been in my like that's been my target for uh, for a couple of years, and since my last big swim. And obviously, I, like when I was I left San Francisco where I usually live, and I was traveling around the world to kind of train for the swim in uh, in February March. And obviously, got locked down in uh, during that time. And I was luckily I was in Cape Town, so I got to spend like some time with my uh, my family, um, my mother and brother. And I haven't lived at home since I was eighteen, so it was actually it was, it was kind of nice. But just knowing that COVID was going to put the brakes on my plans for at least a year or two, um, like worst case scenario, I decided I wanted to just. Uh, pursue a passion project of mine so i eventually made it to australia i have australian citizenship through my my father and i've always wanted to study quantum physics or physics and quantum physics and uh i have a bit of a, of a background in math but i've always loved love physics i'm very much self-taught but i wanted to study it formally so i'm actually just currently enrolled in a uh, master's of physics specializing in quantum physics at the university of queensland and it's obviously quite challenging <laughs> and so that's taking up a lot of my time i'm still training and everything and i still have these plans to do um to swim it's a cool if not this year, next year. But um, yeah, at the moment, it's actually just kind of nice to put my feet up a little bit and just hit the books and you, do a lot of math. <laughs> are, you gunning, are you gunning for a job with Elon Musk at some point? Uh, no, it's more of, I'm, I'm going to have a career like already. And like, I'm not looking to change careers. This is definitely a passion project, but you never know. <laughs> <So I should laughs> you never know. Come. He's doing some big yeah. things at the moment. I wouldn't be surprised. That's cool, man. So let's, um, let's just, I want to just ask you, first of all, swimming, rowing, cycling whatever the event you seem to do it, it's it's always it's big it's it's huge it's something that you've you know it's not just like oh i'm gonna just uh you know cycle from a to b you, you take take on some big big feats where did all this start what what sort of what what spurred you on to want to really take on these these epic adventure challenges and 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 raise money for for charity and and to, to really push yourself through those mental and physical barriers yeah that's a really good question um Jack, I, you know, I kind of grew up an athlete. I used to row uh, at school level and um, and university. Like similar to my my brother was an amazing rower, and we both represented South Africa uh, when we were at university um, and on the national team. And that was like the highlight of my life until then. That was my goal was to row for South Africa. And I think obviously my my highest goal was to row in the Olympics. Um, and, but when I started representing South Africa at like under 23 level, I kind of realized that it might not be a possibility. And even, even if I did make it to an Olympic team, it might not be that competitive. And, and so I made a decision to kind of focus on my career for after university and to not pursue that, um, that rowing dream. And so I did, um, I did a master's, a previous master's, um, did my undergrad in South Africa at Rhodes University and my, did a year master's in Australia in, uh, in Brisbane. 
And then I got my first job in China. And I lived in China for three years. And I was like, best three years of my life. You know, suddenly you have a job and you have some money and you're living in a crazy place. And it was during the Olympics, the Olympic period, where obviously Beijing hosted it. And so for essentially three years, I didn't do any sporting. I played a bit of rugby, but I didn't do any like endurance sport, which is like, it's my strong point. Like I'm a good endurance athlete. I'm quite big and um, I have a good, you know, good, we've good, you know, brother, I've got athletic genes and, um, and I definitely missed it. And after three years of living in China, I was working in a big corporate and like in finance and banking. And suddenly one day I was, I met a guy who was doing a cycling trip through Asia and I was like, man, I want to do the same thing. So literally like a week later, I told my boss, who's an Aussie, an Aussie guy. I was like, his name was Webby. I was like, man, I just, I need to get out there. And I, I like, I've been working for three years and I could just need to get out into the world and I'm, I'm going to buy a bicycle and I'm going to cycle out of China. <laughs> and I just basically threw that at him. He's like, he's like, wow. Okay, cool. But um, like when we're done, just like give us a call. Maybe we can, we can work for us again, you know, somewhere else. So literally like a week later, I bought a bike and then about two weeks later, I, I just got on my bike and I cycled, you know, through China, through Western China into Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, down to India. And I finished in the southern tip of India. And it was during that trip, I did it mostly by myself. And as obviously you're by yourself for so long on this amazing trip through and you're meeting so many people, it really, I was so introspective on that trip. And I kind of realized that I loved, I loved the endurance side of like adventure. And I met so many amazing people. And I kind of also thought back to when I was a kid, like lived growing up in South Africa about you know, about how I was privileged and like how I wanted, even when I was a kid, that kind of like, you you know, I was, it's, it's, it's obviously in South Africa, it's very easy to see that you're privileged because there's so much poverty around you. And even when I was eight, I remember like thinking, I want to make a difference one day and then obviously you become a teenager and you forget all that. <laughs> and then uh, but I was like this cycling trip, brought all those like memories back. And then when I eventually finished that cycling trip, I pretty much, I ran out of money on <laughs> the southern tip of India. And I called my old boss, Webby, and I was like, hey, man, I need my job back, but I don't want to go back to Beijing. Do you have anything in London or New York? And he said, like, someone's just quit in London. So if you can get a visa, you can't come in here. You have to go to London. You got a job there, pretty much. And so that's what I did. I landed in London. Now suddenly I'm working in this, like, huge sky rise in Canary Wharf. <laughs> and I was a little bit disillusioned with that, obviously, as you can imagine, after spending so much time, like, on my bike and, on the, like, the Kazakhstan step, for example. And, um, and that's when I kind of decided to set up something more formal, like a, a foundation where I'll continue to do like athletic feats and uh, and raise money for education, especially in South Africa and Zimbabwe, and early childhood development, and especially in rural areas. So that's where the idea started. So basically, I came up with like three things I wanted to do. I wanted to, and there's kind of dreams from childhood. I wanted to swim the English Channel, row across an ocean, and cycle the length of the United Kingdom. And I remember when I came up with the idea, I was actually in Cape Town on holiday. And I went to my dad and I was like, say, dad, I want to do these three things. I want to, I want to cycle the length of the UK. And he like nods. And I said, I want to swim the English Channel. And he's like really like blank face and blank stare in his face. And he's like, and I want to swim across an ocean. And he's like, Steve flips out. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, you're going you're gonna to swim the English Channel? And I was like, I thought you'd be like concerned about the ocean rowing thing. I think it's a lot more dangerous. And he's like, no, you'll be fine doing that. But like, you've never swum before. <laughs> Like, he was right. I never like swam at all. Like, and uh, I can obviously I could swim, but I never swam at high school or the university, and I never trained in swimming. Um, and I was like, yeah, no, I can train, I can do it. Anyway, like eight months later, I I just scraped it across the English Channel. Um, oh, hey, well, well, one sec, one sec. You went from not being able to swim at all to eight months later swimming the English Channel. Yeah, well, I mean, I could swim. It just it took a lot of coaching and wow. uh, 
and mental and obviously physical training and mental training too because the water is so it's cold and mm. uh, i did an early season swim so extra cold and uh there was a lot of factors there that kind of yeah i had to overcome and in the day like i just I did, it took me 16 hours so i was quite slow back then um i had like <laughs> one of the keys that actually got me through that swim i had my mother was on the crew on the crew and uh and there was one point at like 14 hours in, I was so cold, the sun had gone down. The guy that I'd been actually training with and swimming with, I saw him getting pulled out the water. We did a swim at this kind of similar time and I saw him getting pulled out the water. And I was like really having a bad, bad mental state. And I kind of came to the boat and I was like, I think I might, I told my crew, I was like, I might just, I don't think I'm done. I think, I think I'm going to make this one. And my friend on the boat, Hugh was like, no, I just keep going, Cameron. And my girlfriend was like, no, you got to keep going. And my mother just looks at me and she's like, there's no way you get here on this boat. Like you're not getting this boat until you get to France, kind of pretty much. <laughs> and uh, she used a couple of expletives in there too. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so she pretty much got me across. Um, yeah, essentially that's that's where the charity started. So um, we did these. It took us like three years to complete these: the ocean row and the swim and the cycle. Um, the ocean row was quite difficult um, finding, doing it financially, obviously, and logistically. Um, but yeah, that's where the charity started. And it's kind of once we'd finished the. Um, the um the ocean row like we kind of completed all our goals like raised so much money for on, on the ground projects and then um, i met a, i met a guy called kevin jennings who an amazing guy i met him in london he um he was obama's one of his main fundraisers in his 2008 campaign and he just an amazing he, he was assistant secretary of education in the united states and basically he'd been helping me have fundraisers continuously for our, for the charity for the bunya challenge and then when I spoke to him, like, again, when I came back from the rowing trip, I was like, where do we go now? Do we stop while we're ahead? Because we've come, completed all of our goals. And we kind of made a mutual decision to kind of like, no, let's keep going with the charity. Let's see how big we can make it and um, see how far we can go and let's come up, with some, come up with some new goals. And that's kind of launched me into this like new swimming career. Um, yeah. And obviously also like we, we work with some amazing partners on the ground in South Africa and Zimbabwe on the uh, education side. Before we go ahead, I just want to talk a bit about kind of where where your head's at when you think yourself, right, I'd like to swim the English Channel. And as you said, you're not from a swimming background. You know, you knew how to swim, but it was something that you really had to train for and work hard towards. What what goes through your mind, if you can take yourself back to that place, what goes through your mind when you're sort of beginning that training and then you're sort of halfway through that training and then you kind of get to the point where you're about to swim the English Channel, like arguably one of the biggest, you know, distances anyone would ever swim let alone you know let alone the stuff that you've done to, to date but you know what, what's going through your mind thinking about that from the very start all the way through to when you start to swim yeah i think you know it's amazing coming up with like big goals like goals that you think are impossible for you in your own mind like oh, i want to swim the english channel i've never swum before like and then obviously that's a very specific goal <laughs> and um but then you have to realize like how like what's the, how do you do it and that's like the cool part like uh you you're at this moment where you've never really swum before and you're unfit and in eight months time you want to swim the english channel and there's that space in between like how do i get myself to that point and i think that's what really drives me to have these goals is that uncertainty you know i have to really have to um embrace that uncertainty um that that's i enjoy that part the most that's my adrenaline rush i guess and then obviously think about like how the hell am i going to do that so you obviously need the you need the physical like you need the technical coaching Mm. So I, I kind of hired the best coach I could find, a kind of close to Canary Wharf, a guy called Ray Gibbs, who um, he just taught me an amazing, very modern, like freestyle technique based on like the latest like technique at the time. 
and um, with all the you know the marathon swimmers all swimming in the same technique like the high elbow catch and uh, lots of rotation so from day one I was, I was kind of being coached on this the correct technique and i remember my first lesson with ray he's now a really good friend he's like <laughs> i go in there i was like you start swimming his he's a endless pool so swimming in like in place and i did like he says i guess swim for five minutes and like i swim for five minutes i stop and i'm like out of breath and i'm and he's like, oh, man, you swim really badly. <laughs> You've got a lot of work to do if you want to swim the English Channel in, a, in a eight months. And, um, and I was like, yep. And, and so he just gave me drills. And so I just, so many drills. But not, not, not so many drills. He probably gave me in total, like, over, over a period of time, he eventually got to, like, five drills. And I still do those five drills. You know, I did, like, a, did a 56-hour swim a year and a half ago. And I still, the day before I did that, I, just, I was doing those drills in the pool. And what so are these drills? Just, I'd be interested to oh, know. Yeah, I mean, I can send you a YouTube link of me actually doing them. It's just basically like swimming in your side and, uh, you know, with with fins on and uh, and then doing like three strokes on your side, three strokes on your side. It's, uh, it's very simple drills, but you need those, you need that, uh, that the foundation of that technique and those drills really instill that um, that technique. Um, yeah, it's basically, it's very simple. Yeah, but I'm sure you've done them before in the pool too. Um, well, it, it's interesting because the, the the open water swimming is very different to pool swimming, as I'm, as I'm sure you know. It's you know, there's, there's you got to deal with everything, the waves and the current and the the, the animals and all the rest of it. So it, it's yeah. it's and also the the mindset. You know, when you're in a pool, you just follow a line and it can you can kind of almost switch off and it's almost a bit like active meditation. But yeah, when you're in the big ocean, you've got nothing to follow, so you don't know what, which direction you're going, and also you've got you know, God knows what's coming at you, left, right, and center, and and you've got you know, as 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 uh, animals and jellyfish and, and everything else that's coming out so does that not play on your mind when you're doing your swims that you've got all this other stuff that's just as you said uncertain and not knowing what what's going to come at you yeah of course no and you have to kind of train for that mentally too you know to what are you going to see out there and you know obviously there's a thing with sharks like everyone's worried about sharks um i've seen a couple of sharks especially swimming in hawaii you know seen a couple of uh beautiful tiger sharks swim by but they were like really relaxed and like so you kind of tell they weren't hungry my biggest fear is the jellyfish um and uh so you get stung by a box jellyfish well like you know portuguese manner was not as bad but still pretty painful um it can really um hurt you and you know it's kind of could be lethal if you get stung by too many um yeah, so there's there's a lot of variables in the salt in the, in, the, in the open water and especially in the sea like doing a long swim like my recent um, Barbados Indonesia swim it's 56 hours in the water you can't get out the water and the salt is the killer it's so from like 30 hours onwards in the salt water your your tongue is double the size your lips are like splitting open and it's it's pretty unbearable the pain and so and those and that swim especially it was the salt was like my only really concern because everything else you forget about it <laughs> because like you only really focus on the on the biggest uh, thing like the, the, the most painful thing at the time um, yeah, and as you say, like, you know, if you're swimming in a pool, I love swimming in the pool. I love, like, following the, the, the black line and, uh, and, you know, it's like a meditation. And, you know, it's the same thing in open water. There's just obviously, as you mentioned, a lot more variables to to, to consider. And uh, it's a lot more, but it's also more, more exciting. You're much more engaged. Um, yeah, you never know which direction you're going, you know, unless you're obviously you're spotting. Um, and, you know, I've been I've done a lot of training in Barbados the last few years, and so that's that's really special. You know, that's um, and it actually keeps you engaged. I was doing twenty four hour swims regularly in Barbados just because, it just felt awesome just swimming in amongst the reefs and the, the marine reserves, and there's so many fish, and it's like a, you're like in an aquarium. Am I right in saying that you are you have the record for the longest circumnavigation swim, which was round Barbados? I think that record actually got broken a lot recently. 
Um, but yeah, well, it was at, at that time. And it's a, that Barbados is a pretty hard island to swim around because it sits in the middle of the Atlantic and you have these incredible, like, continuous Atlantic trade winds whacking into it. And so the one side of the island is just like a sheer cliff from all like the waves hitting it and the winds. Um, the other side of the ocean is just like a, a, a pool. <laughs> one side, the other side of the island is just like a pool. And uh, yeah, it was that was my first really big swim. Like I think my previous longer swim before that swim was 17 hours. Um, that was the Molokai Channel in Hawaii. And then I went to this one, which was 41 hours. Obviously a big step. And it took me two attempts to do it. I failed the first time at 27 hours. And like the second time, I was like, I knew I could do it the second time. And I just kind of had the best swim of my life and what, uh, what managed to get around it. What caused the failure? What was the thing that stopped you the first time around? Yeah, good question. Hey, um, And I thought about it. Obviously, I had to think about it a lot. Um, I think for me... Or physically, firstly, my training, like at my peak, I was very well trained for it the first time, probably even better than my sec- the second attempt. Um, but it's such a difficult cr- uh, swim to, to attempt because for most days of the year, the, the winds on the east side of the island are about 20 knots, 30 minimum up to 30, 40 knots. And you can't actually do the swim in those conditions because there's just too many reefs on that side. And so if waves are breaking on those reefs, you can't like you can't actually navigate the island. You have to have a flat day. And there's never a flat day. <laughs> and the only time there's a flat day is if there's a hurricane in somewhere else in the Caribbean, which will suck all the energy out of the rest of the Caribbean. So it'll be like a thousand kilometers away or sorry, 500 kilometers away where there's a hurricane. It'll be obviously crazy windy and wavy. But where we are, like it'll be completely flat because all the energy has been sucked up. And so on days like that, you can actually attempt this one. And so the first time I attempted it was early August uh, 2018. And we waited for a month. I waited for three weeks, and I'd been tapering for a week. And so I basically didn't train for a month, really. Um, and so in, in that month, I kind of, my confidence, like, went down like my, obviously my physical conditioning went down and then I attempted to swim and I almost had to like force myself I was and I had way, had way too much ego like in hindsight to uh, you know, regarding that swim I was I was trying to swim too fast and I was trying to get to halfway at this time and like and I think my uh, my head wasn't in the right space and eventually because I'd swum the first half quite quickly like I did like three quarters and I was completely dead and I was like going into the second night and mentally I just wasn't there and I pulled myself out because I couldn't I wasn't going to be able to handle it like physically or mentally like the the you know the next um the next I've been swimming for 27 hours I couldn't wasn't going to handle the next like 15 20 hours and um so I, yeah I, I pulled myself out um, but then even the next day I was talking to some of like the big, um, this big swimming kind of honchos on the island and I was like, I'm going to try this again. And I was already coming back that November for a swimming festival. And the guys, they were like, look, November's like a really bad month. Like you had a, you eventually had a good day, but like November is pretty, it's not the best time for the weather. And I was like, I don't care. I'm going to try. Anyway, a few months later, I do a lot of training since then, in, like many in, on the Gold Coast in Australia. And I came back to Barbados and the swimming festival I was competing in was like the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I didn't even do any races. <laughs> they let me off, um, even though they were like kind of sponsoring me to be there. But then as soon as like the, um, the Sunday races finished, suddenly there was an amazing window that just came up from nowhere that we could actually attempt to swim. And it wasn't like, well, it definitely wasn't perfect. It was actually quite bad. But they, we thought it was possible to try swim around in those weather conditions. And so we just, as soon as the last races were finishing at the swimming festival, I like went off. And so we had an amazing like crowd to, to, to you know, send me off. 
and I did the swim and I just, I, and this swim, I completely detached myself from, from anything, from the outcome. And I was, I felt, I was obviously had very specific goals about the swim. Um, but this time around, I just completely detached myself. I wasn't trying to swim fast. I just wanted, I just wanted to enjoy it. And I was just present the whole way around. And I smashed it. Like I just had the best swim ever. And, uh, and I had like, you know, I had like 30 people in six boats, like my, my support crew helping me get around the island. And, you know, just, we had like always had two boats with us, um, like feeding me and, and, um, and guiding guys through, the, especially the reefs and the tricky areas. Uh, it was an amazing team effort. And like we came out like 41 hours later and like I'd made it. And then suddenly I was like, man, I can go further, you know? And uh, once you do something like that, you're like, oh yeah, I could probably, if I trade more, I could do more. And then I, and then we started setting our sights even higher. And um, the next idea was a keeper Florida, um, which was, it didn't actually end up happening because we, we got a letter from Donald Trump's uh, State Department saying we couldn't do it <laughs> like three months, three weeks before we were supposed to attempt it. And then um, we ended up doing the Barbados St. Lucia swim, which is, I think it's the, one of the longest ch- channel swims in history. So that was 150 50 kilometers um, and did that in 56 hours that's just i'm just doing the maths quickly in my head that's that's not only insane but also quick and i just you know i what i what i'd like to ask you is what do you remember most from those big swims you know 10 hours in 15 hours in 20 hours in you know your mind must be going all over the place into mm. some crazy places but also some same places like what what do you remember most when you look back at that time yeah no it's i mean there are obviously quite a few memories um in terms of like the thought processes, like I, I'm usually in the beginning of swims, I'm thinking way too much. Um, it's uh, I um, it's not not really. Um, it's uh, it's 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 um, it's my, my mind races a lot, and uh, and I always have too many thoughts. Um, and yeah, but eventually, like your mind settles down. So like that. And so the English channel, I remember like I was thinking about my thoughts race for like four hours. Um, in a uh, when I did the um, I did this last Barbados and Lucia swim, I was probably like my thoughts were going crazy for 24 hours, <laughs> you know. But eventually your mind will settle down and uh, you'll just you just like meditate. And um, but you also get to a point like for this last the Lucia Barbados swim at um, at about uh, um, um, 30 hours, I remember like. I started getting really, I started getting really sore. Like my lips and my tongue were like really, really swollen and painful. And um, at that point, you can't like meditate through it anymore. Like it's just too painful, you know. Um, but you can like really focus on the pain and those like really painful moments, and you can almost like process the, especially because there's a lot of fear around the pain. Um, and once you do, you want to stop. But um, if you focus, and you really kind of really focus on what, where that pain is coming from um, and that fear. Um, you can kind of like you can mitigate the, the whole the whole pain kind of process in your your brain, and um, you almost come out of it like in a better state. Um, so I think like yeah, to answer that part of the question, like you, the um, the second half of the sum especially, it's always like it's just the meditation. It's always focusing on yourself and what emotions are you going through because you can never go negative. As soon as you go negative in a long swim like that, you're pretty much done. So you always have to stay like just above positive. Um, and that's those lessons that I've learned doing these swims as like it's really helped me in daily life. Like when something's wrong, like you, know, you have like negative emotion, like you're angry or jealous or or scared. Like it's always I've learned from those swims. Oh, if I just focus on that, on that actually where that where that kind of emotion is coming from, especially within my own body, like I can almost like push it away. You know, it's the opposite of repression and suppression. I feel like you hear a lot of stories, especially from endurance athletes. Um, 
they said that, that grit is like what gets them through. But I found that grit is probably the worst thing to use, especially in that, these really long swims, because basically grit is basically suppression and repression. These like really kind of hard moments, and you can't do that in a long swim because it's eventually going to come out. Fifty-six hours is too long to just suppress because it's eventually going to come out, and you're just going to dive emotionally. Um, but if you're continually processing these thoughts and emotions in a meditative way, that that can get you through. You can always keep you positive. Do you know who Ross Edgley is? I. I I love the dude. I never met him, unfortunately, but I love listening to him. We actually were in a, we did a conference together once and um, I was doing online, unfortunately, because I was actually, I was going to attempt the Barbados, around Barbados swim the next day. So I was in Barbados. He was actually in San Francisco at the conference and he, uh, but I heard, I heard his speech was amazing and um, he's a very, yeah, very cool dude. Yeah. I've, I've just recently finished his, um, his book, The Art of Resilience. If, I, if you haven't read it, I definitely recommend you get a copy. It's, uh, you, you definitely yeah. love the way he, um, he writes about his 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 trip around the UK, swimming around, uh, circumnavigating, and he talks a lot about what you just said about how he takes a lot of inspiration from stoicism and mm. looks at how you could use the time in the water to really battle the things that are going on on the land. You know, so the fear of being able to dive into the water and swim for six hours on, six hours off for 170 days or whatever he did sounds mental and crazy yeah. and like why would you do that but then at the same time it's he over the course of the book he talks about how being in the water longer actually allowed him to be more connected with the water and get over those things and and really focus on being calm and cool and collected even in the worst conditions you know with the, the currents and the waves and everything else and what you just said there was you know it sort of it resonates with that because you you yeah. have a lot of solitude time you know you're on your own for the majority of it and also unlike cycling or running you could just hear the washing of the water in your ears and you know i know being a swimmer as well it's quite meditative even hearing that that noise so i'm, I'm sure you must forget kind of where you are half the time until you kind of exactly. see a boat like, oh yeah i'm swimming <laughs> yeah and, and it's quite nice to like the time passes quite quickly when you're in that meditative mode um so you have when i'm swimming i, I feed every 30 minutes and when you're in that meditative mode, like the, the 30 minutes just like go so quickly and it feels great. No, no, because you know you're going at a reasonable clip and you're just like, and you just, these 30 minutes are coming and going like really fast and you're, you're cruising. But yeah, I think we're, we're quite lucky, like in, like me and Ross um, and yourself, like being swimmers, because I mean, for instance, if I go for a cycle or go for a hike or a run, like my mind races and I, I naturally this a lot of ego like comes in, comes up. And uh, whereas it's opposite in swimming, like you, the swimming, you go the other way. And it's like, a, it's a natural meditation. So, you know, like if you're doing like a really long trail run, like 56 hour trail run, like it wouldn't be the same nearly, it wouldn't be nearly as, or I'm not going to say easy, but it wouldn't be nearly as easy on your brain, you know, because um, yeah, when you're swimming, you're just naturally in like a really good rhythm. Uh, when you're running, I think it would be a lot more kind of, there'd be too, so many thoughts and it'd be a lot, a lot harder to manage the mental side of it. I completely agree. I'm um, I'm currently training for my third Ironman, and uh, I, I I I get so annoyed that the swim isn't longer because I, I could definitely <laughs> I could definitely do a lot better in the race if, if it was. Yeah. But um, I totally get that. I, I I'm not a I'm not a natural cyclist at all. I like I like running, and obviously swimming is my strength. But cycling, whenever I get on the bike, I feel like I'm just concentrating so hard on anything and everything other than what I'm actually doing. It's either the road or the bike itself or my gear or what am I eating next? And you just, it's just almost more stressful than actually just yeah. sitting on a bike. Um, so it, 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 I can, I can understand what you, what you mean by about just getting into that, that real 
smooth state and just being able to sit in that and, and almost having to be interrupted to, as you said, eat and, and change direction and, you, you know, halfway or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. What do you eat? What is your favorite, you know, go-to snack slash food on, on, a, on a big swim? You know, it's, most of it's pretty standard, but, I, you know, for instance, I'll have a... I'll have a spreadsheet of 50 clubs here, which is a menu basically for you know, like for the Barbados finish. So it's probably like, it was a long spreadsheet because it has like, I feed every half an hour. And so it has like 72 or 72, or 140, say about 70 hours of a menu. Uh, it'll be like 140 like records. <laughs> and uh, so it's every half an hour I'm, I'm, I'm drinking every hour on the hour I'm eating. Um, and usually the drink is the most important thing. So it's just generally like water and carbopro, which is a carbohydrate, maltodextrin based, maltodextrin, just a carbohydrate and a little bit of flavoring. Um, and every once in a while I'll have some electrolytes too. Um, but in the, in the sea, obviously you don't need as many electrolytes because you actually, you're taking in quite a bit of salt. At least I do. Um, yeah, so that's the, that's the drink side. Um, and then on the food side, you know, it ranges like, as I said, I have a menu and it's like, yeah, awesome. there's like energy gels in there and like nut butters and stuff. There's also like chocolate bars and like yogurts and like, uh, like little smoothie sachets. But my favorite thing is actually, um, <laughs> in Barbados, the, the national dish, I wouldn't, maybe it's not officially the national dish, but it seems like it is, is a macaroni pie. And, uh, it's like half, half of it is like butter. And uh, I just love it so much. And uh, so I always like get some, the local Bajans to make me a massive macaroni pie. And I remember like the first time I ate, it, ate macaroni pie in a swim, like someone, a mom had made it for me. I was doing a 24-hour training swim and I was halfway in. And this guy, his, his wife obviously cooked it and bought it to me to have some food. It was a big tray of macaroni pie. I ate, I ate the whole thing. Like in one in one go, I was just so good, and I just and it didn't actually sit on my stomach. It actually, I processed it really processed it really fast, so I knew, and it, I just felt so good after eating something like hearty and like and kind of buttery and uh, and full of carbs. And I was so since then, it's like my go-to. So every dinner, like on a long swim, like the fifty-six hour swim, I think I had three three lots of uh, massive portions of macaroni pie, and it obviously takes you a while to eat it. But that's like. I look, you look for you look forward to that you know it's like uh oh yeah six o'clock before the, the sunrise i'm gonna have like my macaroni pie <laughs> and it keeps you motivated you know um yeah eventually like your mouth gets unfortunately too painful on these long swims like probably 30 35 hours in you can't actually eat certain things like i like snicker bars but um eventually like you can't it's too painful to eat um so generally from the halfway onwards 30 hours onwards it's mainly like yogurts and gels and stuff that you can just like yeah just kind of swallow when do you know that you're ready for your next challenge yeah yeah. (laughs) that's a great question i uh it's it's always like yeah i'm I'm sure you, you you have this feeling too like after a big event you kind of you have to decompress, especially like a big event that was like kind of be built up. Um, mentally, you have to come down from it. Like, I mean, physically, you recover quickly. If you're fit, like you're doing Ironmans, like you have to do so much training, your body's so good at recovering. Like you can, you recover quick physically. I think after that 56 hour swim, probably three days, four days, I was like walking around, I felt great, you know. I wasn't gonna get get, get back in the water, but like um, I felt physically okay. But mentally it took me, because after you slow sleep deprived from a swim like that, it took me like a month to kind of recover. Um, on that swim, I, I, I um, when I finished that swim, I was in I think it was in September. We had planned a, a rowing expedition to Antarctica um, in December, and so I always knew I had that coming up. But um, it was quite nice just taking a month off, and because I expected that row to happen, like it was going to happen, like it was being logistically planned. We had like documentary crews coming with us; it was definitely going to happen. So 
I took a month off and then started training for that. Um, but generally, like um, after doing a big event, it's it probably takes like three or four months. And then, um, and I always have like ideas. Obviously, you're always thinking about what's next, and you always have ideas. And but then suddenly something will click, and I'll be like, I'm going to do that. And then, as soon as you have that like clear specific goal that I kind of spoke about in the beginning, like it's crazy goal, it's so uncertain, it feels impossible in your head, and you start, but then you're really looking forward to that like training and uncertainty and getting there. Once you have that excitement and that specific goal, then it's like you you're all in, and you start, and then you have the motivation to start training for it. So what drives you? What drives you to to keep getting out of the water, resting for a month, getting back in the water, getting in the boats, you know, continuously trying to push the boundaries of what your endurance, adventure, athleticism does? I think it's just like, I mean, I, I do love the stuff. Like I was talking to a friend the other day and I was like, I was thinking about what am I, like I was thinking about swimming and I hadn't swum for a while because um, of COVID and I almost like thought about not doing it anymore. But I said to him, I was like, I really love this stuff. I love the training. I love executing the swims. Um, you know, like I obviously have to work too. So, and if you're training for a 56 hour swim, for example, you're building up to training 12 hours a day. And this is, the training is absolutely incredible. Um, and so you can't have a normal work life. And so you obviously have had to give up like a lot. I still work part-time, but I have a company in San Francisco, but I'm just very lucky that I'm just very flex. I can be very flexible with my I do technology consulting and I'm very, very flexible with my clients and my, and my business partner. And like, they really support me. Even my clients, like hey, I'm, they're very supportive. Um, so I'm quite lucky in that I can like work two hours a day on average for a month, and I can and I can just whack out the training, and I can still make enough money to live and to pay for the swims and stuff. I don't have any a sponsor or anything about, so I'm paying for it myself. But um, at least I, I can do that, and I, I really enjoy my career. Um, and so I feel like I'm just really lucky to be in the situation where I can do a job that I love, just and just do it two hours a day, and then be in the water for the rest, or be in a rowing boat, or be in the gym, or just in training and and doing something I love and pursuing goals that are really high and really excite me. And then at the same time, like I'm doing this awful, like the Bunya Challenge was like a charity that we started, me and Kevin. And uh, and we have amazing 16 board members involved, all like helping me. So I don't have to do much work for it. Like they're running it. I feel like all I have to do is like do these kind of crazy swims and rows and we, um, we make a very significant difference like to these communities we're working with. How often do you go out and see what the difference you're making is doing? I try to get back once a year. Um, so I was recently when I was in Cape Town this last time. As soon as the borders opened, the provincial borders opened, we um, I went with um, one of our new recruits, who's Kate Mappam, who's running our kind of operations in South Africa. We went up to the sites to um, to show her around and meet everybody, meet our partners and everybody there in in the Eastern Cape in uh, in Grahamstown, um, which was really special. Unfortunately, with COVID, the um, this, the early childhood development centers that we've helped, kind of helped to set up and form, um, they were obviously not there because of COVID. Um, they weren't at school. But um, yeah, it was just nice to to get up there. It's the most beautiful. Like, I love it. The area is just most so beautiful, but it's, it's so rural. And, um, you know, before we started working there, there was zero formal, like, early childhood development um, sites in the area. So kids weren't even going to school before the age of, like, grade one. Like, <clears throat> um, yeah, so before we before we started working in these sites, there was zero early childhood development, um, like, um, sites there um this was 2011 and now we have we've developed 16 ourselves and we've helped to like take on another um 25 that have recently be, been started too so our partners are helping to educate 650 kids a day um and we obviously we're internet we're an international charity and we but we help we focus specifically on this um 
and these uh, partners in the Eastern Cape Deep One Year Foundation. Um, and um, yeah, so we we raise money for their projects, and it's a really special relationship we have with them. Um, and it's just amazing going there and like seeing all the teachers again because like we have a, quite a good rapport with them. And they obviously hear the stories about like rowing and swimming, and the kids are obviously quite young, so they don't really understand. <laughs> but um, the teachers always asking me questions about sharks and like and things like that. So yeah, it's it's really special like seeing them and seeing how much progress has been and how well how smart these kids are. You know, when you give them put them in the right in the right setting, give them the right opportunities, how intelligent they are, and um, yeah, and how much how full of life they are. What's it, what's your specific connection to that particular? place in the eastern cape and in, and in zimbabwe yeah so um so i went to university for uh, five years in the area um and it's the eastern cape is the um it's the least developed um province in south africa and especially in education which is already you know the, the governance of education is really poor in south africa but especially in the eastern cape and um obviously spending so much time there and having an amazing education myself there at university i am um, i really want to do it just, it, I really have an uh, you know affiliation with the Eastern Cape, um, and so when you're coming up with the idea for the charity in 2010, 2011, it was always going to be education related, and it was always going to be um, in the Eastern Cape. Um, and we had a few Zimbabweans on our, on our, on our, you know, we had plenty of athletes in the beginning who were like doing stuff for us, and there was a big contingent of uh, Zimbabweans, and I love Zimbabwe too, and uh, and so we kind of we wanted to have a Zimbabwe focus too to make it more African. Um, and our partners there are amazing too. They're, they're a charity called Vimba, completely volunteer, um, and they do some incredible work with like people. They have so much, so much they have so much <clears throat> leverage on the ground there. And so we're developing the, um, for example, in concession in this um, award in concession, which there's no there's no real it's no A level school in the area. So kids are walking four hours a day to get to these um, to get to school every day. Uh, which is obviously you can't not conducive to to learning having kids having to walk such distances. Um, so we're building, constructing the first um, A level school in the ward. Um, yeah, we just finished the um, I think the sixth form um, classroom block. So yeah, the intake next year will be you know it'll be a fully functioning. It's been running for a couple of years. Obviously the, the um, form one, form two, form three, but now we've constructed the last construct uh, classroom block, and um, teachers are funded by the government, luckily. And so, yeah, they will take a full intake of uh, our kids. And with us in November, we did a 50-50. Like, it's just amazing what you can do with, like, a plan and goals and, you know, creating and intentions. And, uh, yeah, and obviously so much support from around the world because we, we raise money in the U.S., in South Africa, Australia, the U.K., like, everywhere. Um, yeah. It sounds amazing. I, I think, first of all, it's great that you've got a cause to be able to do all these amazing adventures for. And I think that, you know, you also are seeing it develop as you – as you compete, as you, as you race, as you do these adventures, you know, it's, 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 I think it's great. And I think that you can, I, I, I can see now why it drives you to want to continue doing all the things you do. And I'm sure that as you get, you know, more further down the line with your, with your career in this, in, in endurance uh, athlete and, and swimming, you're going to find people are going to be jumping on board and there'll be, you know, bigger sponsorships and more people want to get involved. And, you know, it, it could be something that continues way after, you know, you stop swimming or stop rowing and, and doing all that sort of stuff. So I think it's, I think it's really, really cool. Um, I want to talk, I want to talk to you about your row, the impossible row. And I want to, uh, I want to just, I want to just ask you, can you just give us a quick rundown what is the impossible row and and what how did it come about yeah i'll tell you my version of the story <laughs> um so i previously rode across the indian ocean um 
in 2014 with a skipper, Levin Brown, very experienced skipper, and we had a crew, a guy called Fian, Jamie, and then um, three others. And then it was an amazing expedition. It took us uh, 57 days. I think we broke the speed record by about 10 days, and we saw some incredible things out there, like the storms in the beginning, leaving the Australian coast. You, know, you had the Southern Ocean so close by, some incredible storms. Um, we ran into a blue whale, almost got in, almost intercepted by pirates, getting close to Africa. Like It was absolutely a wild trip and almost got taken quite a bit by a tanker ship too oh, well, hang on, well, let's just, can i just stop a sec hang on so you you got you got you, got, you, you ran into a whale awesome you got almost taken over by pirates you can't just yeah, you can't just go uh, glaze over that we need to talk <laughs> we need to dive into, 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 into this one wow yeah, fair enough <laughs> well i was actually so i'm telling the story from the crew that were on deck at the time's perspective i was actually sleeping at the time but i can remember coming out early for my shift because guys weren't rowing and there was so much chatter on the deck and i came up and i was like what's going on and like the guys were like Guys were visibly shaken and um, and just talking. And so what happened is like, I'm like, <laughs> this boat just came next to us. And they're radioing. This, we're quite close to, like, we're going in the direction of Somalia now, so the north of Madagascar. And so it is a dodgy area. I mean, it was going to be dodgy. Um, apparently, this, like, red skiff came next to us. I'm not sure if you watched the movie Captain Phillips, but, like, it's one of those, like, pirate skiffs looked just like that, apparently. And they were, like, the radio to us. And they were like, yeah, like, stop, stop, stop. We're going we're gonna to come on board. <laughs> so we obviously didn't stop rowing. Um, luckily, uh, Levin, our skipper, he's this really short, uh, stocky Scot- Scottish guy from the Scottish borders and really kind of tough guy, but with a very soft Scottish accent. And after they'd been badgering us for a while, they said they were a fishing boat. There was no fishing ro- rods inside. Like they didn't, they, they didn't have the equipment to be like a fishing boat. It just didn't seem from that from our perspective. And eventually, like Levin, after they kept badgering us on the radio just to stop, like Levin went to the radio and he's like, in his like Scottish accent, he's like, "We are a Navy Q boat waiting for refuel by the Royal Navy in ten minutes." And on hearing that, like they just like they just actually pushed off. And then, <laughs> yeah, so they might have been a fishing boat, but like the guys who told me the story on deck, they were like, "That definitely didn't seem like a fishing boat." And they looked, the guys looked pretty dicey. Um, and there was a tiny fishing boat, like in the middle of it was still the middle of the like Indian Ocean. So we were like, they must have had like a, mo- a mother boat somewhere close by. And, yeah, very very dodge. Do, um, do you think that? Uh, do you think that that pressure and that uh, kind of adrenaline rush get you got you the the the, the record in the end? <laughs> Push, <laughs> pushing through that that last that bit, you got to keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah, uh, no. To be honest, like I think the weather was so crazy the first three weeks. We had such crazy following storms. Like we went through, we rode, rode through a hurricane pretty much. Um, at least the, the the remnants of a hurricane, and we went so fast the first half of the trip that we knew we were going to break the record. We just needed to, like could almost like stop the boat and the current will take us across like in the record. So, but when we hit those with the pirates, it definitely like shook us up a lot. Um, it's almost like being chased by a shark in a way. Like you get that motivation suddenly. Like let's not mess around anymore. Like let's let's get the hell in. Um, so we eventually went to the Seychelles, which was the closest um, the closest island and the closest like civilization at that at that stage. Didn't want to try go to uh, Kenya because like the currents are all going north of that stage. If you miss Kenya in Somalia, and that's even yeah, then you're right in the thick of it. Um, yeah, so I think it was a good decision to 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 change course and go to um, go to the Seychelles. Um, but yeah, no, that, that trip, there's a few times where I didn't think we were going to make it. Like we almost got run over by a tanker ship, which is definitely the closest I've been to like thinking I'm not going to make it. Um, you know, when you're a tiny rowing boat, 30, 40 foot rowing boat and you're dwarfed by this tanker, you literally, we're literally pushing the, the tanker away with our oars. Um, it's all on YouTube. I've seen some footage on YouTube. Yeah. How, can I just ask, how did that, how did that happen though? Surely you've seen this thing from God knows how many yes. miles away. 
Yeah. So, how, do, um, how, do, how do you how do you potentially hit something like that? Yeah, like, yeah, it must seem kind of strange. Um, what actually happened there was um, one of our crewmates, uh, Shane, who's actually in Melbourne here, um, he um, he burnt himself quite badly. Obviously, we're cooking food and we're boiling water to use, uh, pour into our dehydrated hiking food, you know. And um, cool, mate. And so, yeah, and so um, I think he just had a he just there was a big swirl and he was cooking. He was boiling some water and it fell on top of him, unfortunately. And he was wearing so much gear that like this wind is it's burnt him really badly. I mean, it wasn't bad; it was like first degree burns. But I've seen a rowing boat like that; it's uh, not conducive to those kind of injuries. Um, not a medical ward, but the, but the slightest. And um, eventually after three days of him not rowing we looked at his wounds all these leaven came and i looked at his wounds and you could see like the septicemia setting in and so he just got straight on to luckily shane was one of the only guys in the crew that had like really good insurance <laughs> in hindsight or it wasn't the best idea from the rest of us not having like good insurance but like shane did have good insurance global rescue and they like literally five hours later after calling them at this kerosene tanker intercepted us going the other way <clears throat> but they wanted to um <clears throat> their strategy was to put um to, they have a, obviously a crane on their boat and so they wanted to drop the, the crane with a basket on the end with two people to the water and we were supposed to row to this basket. But I mean, we're on a really big, like 40-foot rowing boat. We can hardly go forwards, let alone <laughs> like left and right. Um, not maneuverable at all. And so that's where the issue came in. So we tried to go to the basket and we got we were on the leeward side of the of the tanker and we just got like, it got blown onto us and that's why we were like, had to push it off. But you know, like a big, it wasn't any, luckily it weren't that big swells, but if you know if that, that boat even touched our boat, it would have been crushed straight away and we would have been sucked under. It's um yeah, it was pretty scary. Um <clears throat> yeah, and we had a blue whale. But yeah, the scariest things were the storms for sure. Like some of the waves out there is absolutely incredible. Like the um the tail end of the hurricane that we went through. We we kept rowing because we had following winds, but some of the waves, you know, looking at like 30, 40 foot waves, it's just like it's 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 hard to imagine how 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 crazy mother nature is and when you're experiencing it the first time it's it's so crazy and you you're worried about your life you know and i remember looking at leaving once <clears throat> and like i think it was the first big storm and i was i was scared like i didn't want to but i don't want to show the rest of my crewmates that i was scared you know showing me macho and everything and um and uh but I, I just wanted to know what, what was going through Levin's mind. He's been through, like, he's done five oceans before, ocean rows before. And I'm in the stroke seat. And in these really big conditions, Levin would be, like, standing in front of me, looking over the bow. He's, like, manually steering because the, the waves are too big for the water helm to, to handle. And I remember, like, in, I looked up at him, and he had this, almost had, like, in these crazy winds. And, like, we've been, waves are breaking on top of the boats, and he was, like, almost getting swept off. But he still had this smile on his face. And I was like, what the hell is he smiling about? And then um, eventually I asked him, I was like, I, try, I framed the question like very kind of lightheartedly. I was like, I was like, hey, Levin, like, like, what do you think about these conditions? Are they safe or not safe? And Levin, like, he just, he's got these two pieces of rope in his arms and he's like staring and he just, he pans over the horizon and the waves <clears throat> and he looks down at me and he's like, and it's like thick accent. And he's like, he's like, welcome. I don't really know, but put it this way. Nobody else would be rowing in these conditions right now. <laughs> and he said, it's like smile on his face. And I was like, you're sadistic, man. Like, <laughs> it didn't make you feel any better, but like, it was nice to see that he was happy. And like, and it was funny because like, that was the first storm. They went through another huge storm. And then the first one was the biggest. But eventually you get used to it. Like you don't think, like the first storm, I went out for, going out for our sessions, we were rowing two hours on, two hours off the whole time. You go out for your session, especially at night. And I'm like, Suddenly, you don't think you're going to die. And suddenly, no, I think I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through this one. Um, and so that like, then obviously brings us forward to um, 
like probably three years ago. I um, so that's 2017. I so we've me our crew is kind of largely kept in touch. Um, especially me and Jamie. Jamie's a Scottish kid. Um, got, got, Scottish got rid accent. of the pirates. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jamie's just like incredible dude. Like he's the most fun guy I've ever met, and he's just but he's just he's a typical Scotsman. Like just crazy, and he's he loves. He eventually loves the storms too. Like you know, first one was really we were scared, and like by <clears throat> the third one we went through, we were like cheering and like trying to catch the waves and stuff. Do you know what it um, reminds he, me of? He, it, it reminds me of that uh, scene in um, Forrest Gump where uh, they've bought the shrimping boat and they've gone out and it's gone stormy, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Captain Dan is sitting at the top of his mast and he's you know got his legs hanging over and he's just like yeah. god go for it go for it and it's, you're driving through the storm that's what i'm imagining these guys to be it's like pretty much, it's, it's pretty much like that hey? like <laughs> jamie was like as soon as because we have a speedometer next to us too and so whenever we surf a wave we can see like the, the speedometer just like like suddenly jumps like 15 knots and whenever we broke our previous record like jamie would be like screaming for joy he's like we got 15 knots and he'll be like screaming and then <laughs> Yeah, and so we actually we used to row really hard in the storms, especially with the following waves to try to surf these waves to try to break our speed record. Must be amazing. Nice. These waves are like thirty foot, <laughs> so you're literally surfing at that foot. You've almost got to take yourself out of that. You've got to just be like, I'm never going to experience this ever again in my life. So I've just got to got to enjoy it rather than be scared by it, because otherwise, you know, it's 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 you're going to regret later on. And be like, actually, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, then those memories will stick with us. And then, yeah, and then suddenly, like in 2017. Um, I get this call from Fian. And so Fian was on that row. He's this Icelandic guy. We call him the, uh, the Viking. He's this you know, long blonde hair, like massive pecs and a six pack. You see through his t-shirt, you know, it's like, it's like really thick uh, Eastern European accent. And we call him the shaman because he has all these like crazy beliefs and everything. It's an amazing character. You should get him on your show. Um, it'd be, it'd be an interesting talk. <laughs> I'd, I'd love, <laughs> so that, love, love the introduction. <laughs> if you can make that happen, yeah. I'd, I'd love, to, love to have him on. Yeah. It'd be interesting for sure. Um, anyway, he, um, he calls me up and he's, he's, that was his, I think his second row that he did. He previously broke the Atlantic record. He wrote that's an Indian Ocean. We broke the Indian Ocean record. He then broke the Pacific record. And he, did a re- he did a record row in the Arctic. And this, so now he wanted to, he's, he calls me up and he said, like, and Jamie has, really, has spoken to me about this plan too. But like, Fian's like, wants the captain and organize a crew to row the Drake Passage from South America to Antarctica, which is like the craziest, uh, by far quite a distance the craziest body of water in the world because you have the atlantic the pacific and the southern oceans all converging this kind of narrow 600 mile passage and and obviously the southern ocean is notorious for huge seas and huge waves and winds and so and fian calls me up he's like hey Cam, like i'm planning this um he's speaking he's like his you know his deep accent he's like hey come like i want to do this role to antarctica and I said, do you want to do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, but <laughs> of course, like sign me up. And I was like, how much is it going to cost again? And he's like, oh, I think it's you know probably like twenty twenty thousand US dollars. And I'm like, I'm paying for this myself. So like, but I'm like, I don't care. I'll find the money from somewhere, you know. Anyway, like, but in my head, I'm actually thinking it's probably be closer to, to 30, 40, because like it's twenty thousand seems like quite low. Anyway, that was by the by, like it's, the money didn't matter to me. I was like, I'll find it somewhere. You know, I just really want to be involved in like Fionn's row because Fionn's this incredible dude, like the most ambitious athlete, adventurer I've, uh, I've been associated with. Um, his techniques are quite unconventional, as you can imagine, but um, he always gets us, like, always get across with him. You know, <laughs> he's a strong dude mentally and physically. Um, but yeah, no, so that's where it started, like two years before the actual row happened, um, the three years ago. And, um, and we recruited some other guys, amazing guys. Um, 
Andrew Town and John Peterson from, they were both collegiate rowers at Yale University. Um, Andrew's gone on to do the Seven Summits, so an adventurer, a great rower. John was a principal at a, uh, at a charter school in San Francisco. Um, yeah, it's incredible dude. Like he captained the, the the Yale rowing team, and he's just like a very genuine guy. But he hasn't done much other than rowing. You know, so he's like he's been this career with a little experience, but he was like one of the strongest guys on the row. He just has this amazing and strong personality. But he also has like a two-year-old kid at home, so he also, he also has the most to lose. Um, and it was interesting seeing the dynamic of him kind of signing up for the row and being nervous about it. yeah, it's in his family. Um, but it's like. Yeah, I think like it actually made a big difference to us having him there because like he just had a really good calming influence on us, and um, he helps us to all be kind of vulnerable with each other and to be very helpful and like do do the row for each other. Um, I think Andrew and John both had that amazing effect on us. Just um, so that's two amazing guys. And then the last the one the last guy who recruited um, the most amazing dude was uh, Colin O'Brady, who's a um, um, yeah he's an incredible athlete he used to be a like a professional triathlete and he's done the seven summits in the fastest time he walked across antarctica and now he's like he's on this row with us and i remember like reading about colin i heard about him before then i read about him like after i spoke with fear and then he was kind of trying to recruit colin and i was like man like why is this guy joining us we're a bunch of amateurs you know like and now this guy colin is like coming on board it's like incredible dude like and it's such a great amazing following it's like almost like a celebrity athlete you know and i you know i spoke to him on the phone and he's like so much energy and so now we have this amazing crew <clears throat> and as soon as colin was involved um suddenly the whole row changed and suddenly um we were having i think we had you know a number of companies like try to want to do a documentary on us Whereas, so whereas before we were going to be paying a lot of money and now it's all paid for and we have this documentary coming with us because we actually to go to Antarctica you have to have a supervising vessel go with you especially if you don't bloody rowing boat like uh, just the Antarctic Treaty you have to have a supervising vessel so it wasn't even a choice and I remember first talking to Fiona about the first time we spoke was like I was like He's like, I think we might need to have a following vessel, but I'm going to try not to. I think we just do it on that one. So that was the intention, always just like just to go. <laughs> like it's a crazy idea, but then like eventually we found out we actually had to have a, a supervising vessel with us. And so the initial plan was to have a sailing boat come with us, and that was just, that wasn't the best idea, obviously, because like what are they going to do if we fall capsize in the middle? And yeah, they weren't going to do much. <clears throat> um, so eventually, suddenly with Discovery, the Discovery Channel involved, suddenly. The, the budget changed and suddenly we had an icebreaker as our supervising vessel and the most incredible like uh, New Zealand's crew on this icebreaker. And so eventually like we did a, we did a test row in Scotland and then um, it was great doing like a two day row with the, with the guys and meeting everybody like all together and doing some really good team building. Um, Andrew Town is a management consultant and a very high end like international management consultant, one of the top four firms and uh, consulting firms. And so he took us through a lot of like team building exercises, which was awesome. We spent two days together. And it's funny because like I would, I, on that Scotland trip, I just peaked, just my, uh, it was two weeks before my Barbados and Lucia swim. And so I just had my, had my peak training week. So I basically did three 24 hour swims in a week in Barbados. And then I finished the last one at, I had an hour to pack. I went straight to the airport. I flew to Scotland from Barbados, like via Miami, London, Glasgow, rent a car, drive five hours to the Isle of Skye, and then get on a rowing boat for two days. <laughs> and like once I'd done that, and like obviously the sleep deprivation involved with that was pretty incredible. Um, I knew that I could do that. I, I could do a 56-hour swim. Um, but eventually, then we eventually end up in Punta Arenas together, which is like the most southerly port in Chile. 
and we met up with Braveheart, which is the supervising vessel. We spent a couple of days packing the boat and got onto the supervising vessel, and we took it. It took us to um, Cape Horn, um, which is obviously the sun point of South America, and to start the row. And you know, Cape Horn is the most treacherous um, body of water in the water. I think up to like I think it's 800 boats have, have sunk there, and 10,000 sailors have lost their lives at um, around Cape Horn. So it's infamous in the um, in in ocean, in ocean, like um, sailing mythology and like in stories, and I've always heard about my dad. Always where he wanted to uh, to sail, and eventually, a few days before, few years before he died, he actually did get to go to the, the um, to Cape Horn to actually see it in person. His his friends took him, so it was, had a big emotional connection with me. But leaving Cape Horn was um, was quite difficult. We actually had a good weather window before a day of like really reasonably calm weather because you have these storms, and if the storms hit Cape Horn, it's quite shallow, and it's just and so the waves get very steep very quickly, and the shoals are for about 70 miles. So we basically had to do 70 miles in the first day to get off the continental shelf, which is a lot. And so for the first day, we just like hit it really hard, or just fast, fast and hard as we could, and eventually got like two days, got 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 off the continental shelf before the big storm hit. But you know, we're a we're a 30 a 30 foot boat, 27 feet I think, and we're six guys. It's a four person boat, and we have six guys on it because we need a small boat. We need to be so maneuverable because the conditions are going to be so tough. You know, the, the Indian Ocean is um it's a long ocean. Obviously, it took us two months, but we, we were generally with the trade winds the whole time. We went we had to stop the boat because of adverse headwinds only twice. And this row, in 12 days of rowing, we went on to sea anchor and like, had to stop the boat because the conditions were too hard against us, like five times in 12 days. Because you can imagine, the Indian Ocean, you have, you have the trade winds. They're always going from um, east to west. On the Drake Passage, like, there's so many low-pressure storms going through there and like such crazy weather. Like, the winds, if you wanna, you're trying to be going like, you're trying to go south, southeast. The wind's never going to go south, southeast. It's going to go every other direction. And so we're always fighting the wind and growing crazy crosswinds. And as soon as the wind goes against you, like anything more than 10 knots. We're such a big boat that you can't actually row. Even if you're rowing, you're going backwards. And so you, just, you put out a, 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 a drogue, a parachute into the water that kind of holds us, holds our backward progress as much as possible. But now you can imagine we were six guys in this boat having to fit into like these tiny, tiny cabins. And um, the two, the two, uh, the Fia and the captain and um, Colin, the first mate there in the stone cabin, which is pretty small, but it's just like, it's just two of them in there and they're like spooning the whole time and then they're in the cabins because now the waves are huge and like it's, very treacherous conditions and the four of us the other guys the biggest dudes are in the bar and like there's no ways you can you can sleep in there like uh, if there's four of you and you just, you're basically on top of each other like two people it's you're you're tight um three people you literally like spooning side by side like again against one guy's against the, the one side the starboard side the other guys in the middle and other guys in the bath and the on the port side and you basically just like spooning and like four guys is actually impossible so if one guy always had to be on deck even during like the craziest craziest storms like in 40 foot waves because like when a storm comes through the drake pass you know about it like it's you can have a drake lake they call it the drake lake with the drake shake and the drake lake is like awesome i mean it's still rough in any other kind of sea but like then you have the drake lake drake shake and it gets big quickly and it's always like crazy like short period steep waves and um crazy like i've never seen anything like it and um but luckily so me and jamie and fian have done this before like we've been in the storms in the indian ocean and we kind of like missed it in a way that adrenaline rush of like rowing in these crazy storms but now you have like john and andrew and colin who um these guys have uh, never they've obviously done some amazing things and amazing athletes but they've never been in a storm like me and jamie hadn't in that first row 
And so you could just see like the fear in their eyes. So we, we spent a lot of time just being vulnerable to each other before the road, because we knew we were going to expect this. And like, we just, remember we, me and Jamie were talking to um, Andrew and John and Colin about like what to expect out there and like to know that you're then there together. And like when you, and when we were, we were changing shifts with Andrew and John a lot, um, me and Jamie. And um, every time you pass them, especially in the rough conditions, you like just give them a hug and say, it's going to be over. Like, one day, <laughs> eventually these, these storms will pass, you know, um, and just, just hang on for dear life, <laughs> get your oars in the water and pull. Um, yeah. And um, I think this trip was, was amazing just because we had like a phenomenal crew that kind of, we, we rode for each other. Um, but yeah, we had um, 12 days to get across, um, five, five, five um, periods of sea anchor and I didn't stop the boat uh, just because it was too we couldn't go forward um, Fian was navigating and did an amazing job navigating to the peninsula and the whole aim was to get through the Shetland Islands to the peninsula um, yeah I had to go for a little swim halfway because <laughs> we, you know, you're stuck in these cabins all the time and like sweaty and everything I just wanted to jump in the water you know my swimming past and like people thought I was a bit nuts but uh, I have seen the footage the water, the- yeah, the water wasn't too cold. It was like six degrees. And I basically just jumped in, jumped out. But um, yeah, the guys thought it was crazy. But I was like, it's kind of normal for me, you know. <laughs> um, and I love I love swimming in cold water. Like I do a lot of ice swimming. Um, yeah, so suddenly um, we'd, you know, we'd gone through, we've been rowing for um, you know, 10 days. And suddenly, you know, it feels like we've gone through the hell of the Drake Passage. And now we're in like Antarctica, surrounded by like icebergs. And I remember the first, the first bit of land we saw and we're to my... We knew it was coming, but it was really foggy. And so we could kind of see it through the fog. And then my shift ended, so I went back into the cabin. When I came out for the next shift, we were actually adjacent to Smith Island. And it's an island, the most incredible site. It basically comes up from nothing, um, from, the, from the ocean. It goes up to about 9,000 feet straight up. And it's just like white. It's like glaciers, snow, ice. And it's just got this peak goes straight up from the ocean up. And um, it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And we are just calmly rowing past it at dawn, flat conditions. And we just rowing past this island. <laughs> and it was absolutely amazing. And we were surrounded by penguins. And uh, yeah, it's those, it's those kind of like really raw memories that you'll never forget. Like, how can you compare that to anything else? And then um, we started going through the Shetland Islands. And, you know, killer whales are going underneath the boat and like jumping around us. Penguins are continually following us. And now you're suddenly rowing past these like huge like cruise liner like size uh, icebergs. Um, the visual part of that last bit of the road was like mind-boggling and and then you almost like rode into an iceberg because obviously we rode and going backwards you don't like you can't see behind you um <laughs> almost rode into an iceberg which almost like ended our row because um, we were going straight for this iceberg and we were actually right when we eventually turned around and saw where we were going we were only like 10 meters away we were going straight for a cave within the iceberg so we would have pretty got wedged into this like iceberg cave who knows what i would have done to our boat because obviously the icebergs going up and down uh, I would hate to have known what would happen there um, <clears throat> and that was only five hours from the finish line and eventually obviously we rode to shore got our, got off the boat and um, yeah, we made it and we were greeted by a lone uh, leopard seal and a penguin on shore and uh, yeah we just kind of like obviously had to do interviews and stuff but like I just got to walk around and like really kind of see an article and experience like this it's like Antarctic, like wonderland, like winter wonderland. So beautiful. I can't, hard to describe the different colors, like the different shades of blue and, uh, and the animals. And yeah, it's so raw and beautiful down there. 
it's one of the few places in the world that I think a lot of people would absolutely desperately go to, but it's not somewhere you can just, you know, it's not like you can nip yeah. there on an easy jet or a jet star flight or whatever. You can't just uh, pop over. It must've been fascinating. Yeah. And especially to go through like the whole journey of getting across and selling you there, you know, it made it very special. Yeah. As opposed to obviously like getting a, um, <clears throat> a cruise liner or flying there. It was a kind of hard journey. <laughs> it made you appreciate it a lot more, for sure. All, all worth it. So over all of the, over the years you've been doing this, it's, you know, almost a, a decade, right? You've been doing doing races and, and swims. What is the one, what's the event or the the swim or the row or the cycle or the, the thing that's shaped you the most to date? <clears throat> I'd say probably the first cycle that I did, you know, being by myself for so long, it definitely kind of changed the, my direction in life. Um, from then, I think... Um, in terms of the athletic stuff, I, uh, you know, failing in Barbados the first time was a big life changer. That that definitely changed my mindset from more of like a. I realized that, <clears throat> I think that most men do like to have an ego. Like everyone has an ego, I guess, but especially like men. I think growing up in South Africa, too, especially you know, and like you grow up in a kind of very macho society, and I realized that <clears throat> even though I probably wasn't conscious of it at the time that it had an issue, and uh, I had to lose that. If I was going to kind of continue and do these big swims and rows and be able to cope mentally, um, and I, I'm lucky that I've been meditating since I was in my early 20s, and um, and I, I suddenly had a, a means to which I could kind of lose the ego through the meditation. Um, and I, I'm quite lucky that I've had a, I have a few really good role models on the swimming side. Um, a girl called Sarah Thomas, who's uh, she holds the current like longest swim uh in the world i'm trying to break a record with the uh <clears throat> trying to break a record with the ethical swim but she's she's very supportive um and i speaking to her a lot about how she approaches swims and you can see she's the most amazing cool girl and uh she has no ego and she just does it because she loves it and i realized like after speaking to her and failing that one time that i had to kind of lose all that uh that superficialness and the ego um and that's made the biggest difference yeah if you can go out and do a swim and just really enjoy it and be obviously be very specific specific and technical about what you're doing but also at the same time completely lose any attachment to what you what the outcome is going to be and just really enjoy the present it makes a massive difference and i don't think i could have uh, kind of continued to do these swims um especially on the scale that we've done them um without that that new mindset knowing knowing what you know now what would you do differently if you were to have your time again uh, that's a good question i uh if I did it all again, I think you know, it's hard to say because I feel like everything kind of has happened for a reason and it's kind of led me to this point. Yeah, so it's hard to kind of nail down a, um, something that I would have changed because I think it's been a, it's been an amazing journey that I wouldn't I wouldn't want to change. It's um, but yeah, I think like what I just spoke about, like if I knew the kind of lessons that I have learned, especially from failing in that swim, especially by like my mental state, the mental, the mental side, like. If I'd learned that a lot younger, <laughs> it would be, be a lot different, you know. Um, yeah, I think that was the one thing. That's been the biggest le- lesson I learned. And I think if I'd learned that younger, I would have uh, would have done things a bit differently yeah, and, and better. Yeah. And today, how many world records have you got under your belt? I think if you officially looked at the Guinness World Records, I think it would be nine. And I think uh, there's one pending, so I think it would be ten. Yeah, amazing. But if they did actually, so I think they're an awesome organization where they're quite slow with uh, <laughs> some of that stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, but they 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 were really good at the um, the Antarctic stuff. 
um, the Antarctic Road, they, they published an amazing spread in their uh, like book, which is kind of cool because you've got to grow up reading the Guinness Book of World Records, you know, like, ah, oh, that's so cool. And then, like, there's an amazing, cool spread of our row in there. Yeah. I mean, the visuals of our row were incredible, like, in Antarctica, like, uh, and the documentary that's come out, The Impossible Roads, just came out recently on um, Discovery Plus in America, and I think in the UK too. It's pretty, pretty awesome. And just watching it just brought back all those memories. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, yeah, ten ten records, and like Fian had to tell me that because Fian's Fian's the guy that's always in touch with the Guinness, and he's like that day he's like, Cam, I think you have ten records, and I was like, oh really? Like I don't know, I don't know I had that many. Like, um, yeah, he he keeps count for sure. Yeah. I think Fian actually has the most Guinness World Records in, of anyone in the world. Amazing, like thirty or forty or something. Oh, it's uh, I'd love to chat to him. I think it'd be amazing. It, I think I feel the it's one of those things that it must become quite addictive in a, in a way as well. Once you've kind of done one and you push yourself through such an incredible emotional physical and 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 you know crazy barrier that you're like hmm, okay that was that what what else is out there that could potentially push me even further what else can i grow into and so i'm sure that you know you must go to bed at night thinking what else has out there to 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 to, to attack and to to pursue yeah i think it's like most things like in your iron man's and stuff like you normalize it in your own head and then you're like, oh, well, that wasn't too bad. And like, mm-hmm. let's do another one and let's go for a better time. Or, uh, yeah, it's all normalization thing. And I obviously, you realize that like what you're doing is like kind of crazy. Like, um, they kind of, especially when you, and you, especially like, for example, I've done an Ironman too. Like, I didn't, <laughs> my friend, um, my friend persuaded me to do it with minimal training, which wasn't a good idea. I think I did it in like 13 to 14 hours. Um, but I, but I kind of enjoyed the process. But like, it's a crazy thing you're doing. But you then you do one and you're like, ah. Oh, normalize it and then like oh, i'm gonna do a better time next time and same thing with like these long swims um and i think the cool thing about uh just uh, the stuff that i do is not it's not competitive i don't feel like i'm not competing with anybody i'm just like it's there i want to go a to b and uh, get across this ocean and like you have no idea what's going to happen on the way and it's that uncertainty that really kind of brings me back to keep doing it like this is a cool swim that i want to do in kyrgyzstan and so it's the 180 kilometers of like swimming in this like alpine lake, most beautiful lake I've ever seen. As I said, I cycled past it on that original cycling trip through Asia. And I remember back then, I couldn't swim back then. <laughs> I remember like, I remember thinking in my head, I'm going to come back here someday. I never thought I'd come back to swim it. Um, but I definitely wanted to come back. And I just can't wait to do that for that experience of like doing that, the length of that crossing in that, in that body of water. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. I think that, you know, as, as you said, it's, it's just raising that bar every time, you know, you, you do everything you do, your, your unconscious mind becomes conscious of what then you're able to do. And you then are able to push yourself to that next barrier. Um, have you read David Goggins, any of his stuff where he talks about the 40% rule? And he says, it's a good, I'll, uh, I'll send you a couple of books after this. Cause uh, this, I really <laughs> enjoy them, but he's he talks yeah. about it in his book. Uh, Can't hurt me that he has this yeah. thing called the 40% rule whereby when you think you're done, you've only just done 40%. So if you just, if you just push that little bit more, that 5% extra, just that one time, next time you're yeah. done 45% and 50%. And, and you just basically build up that resilience inside you to be able to kind of push further every time. And so the bar just keeps getting raised and raised and raised so that your yeah. fitness and your mental capacity is just always up there. So you can keep pushing yourself past those boundaries. For sure. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. Yeah. The 40% rule, because we're, we're only human beings in the, the day. I mean, we're, 
we're a function of our emotions. And it's, it's generally that when you hit that 40% time when you want to give up, it's, it's more your fears and emotions that are, are telling you we're just like, but those fears and emotions are just human reactions to certain things that have like we've grown up with, obviously, or through evolution to have these thoughts and fears for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to listen to them. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a stat that I learned that said that when we're born, we're literally born with a fear of, of falling and a bit of the fear of loud noises. Everything else is learnt. So yeah. somewhere along the line, we've learned to be scared of whether it's deep water or, uh, you know, uh, scary objects or jellyfish or long distance rowing, whatever it might be. But, you know, and the only yeah. way to overcome that is just to rewire your brain to understand that it's actually not, it's not the scary thing. It's, it's, it's your mind telling yourself that you haven't yet <clears throat> experienced something along those lines. So you have to put yourself through it to see that it's not that bad. Exactly. Yeah. And I think where David Goggins is talking about that 40% rule, when you get to that point, it's like, why am I, like the point thing is ask yourself, why am I scared? And like find the root of that. And if you can do that and really focus on it, you actually realize that it's just like, it's something external to you. You don't have to, don't have to listen to it. Yeah. And like the next 5%, the next 5%. Yeah. But I also a lot of, a lot of people always, I mean, people have asked me during, um, so when I did my second Ironman, it was actually during the UK lockdown. So I was meant to go out to Nice and do a proper one there. We ended up doing a self-created one in London. So it was just literally just oh. me and two other mates and my girlfriend and my mum and my dad kind of following around in a car. But it was it was pretty hectic, but it was the most lonely thing I've ever done, but taught me a lot of things about myself that I, I would have never have known otherwise. But when it when it comes to doing those things, you know, you you just you put yourself into such a, a state leading up to it and the build-up and the training is almost worse than the actual day and so when people say how was it i actually say you, you almost want you enjoy it more because you're like well i've done all the hard work you know all the 12 hour days you've done all that nutrition training all that you know being you know beasted by whoever it was that was helping you in, in the various parts of your training that was the bit that you're like kind of slogging through on the day that you swam all the channels and the day that you did the ocean row and the day that you did the, you know, the solution of Barbados, those I'm sure you enjoyed them or, you know, you try to try to enjoy them because, you know, that's what you train for. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, <clears throat> yeah, and it's, it's, it's so key. Obviously, as you say, you've done the, the, the physical hard work and now like, now it's the enjoyment time. <laughs> now you got to get out there and like, experience like for an example of an ocean swim like i get to experience what the ocean is going to be like and like you can't wait to see what's going to happen out there because you have no idea like the coolest thing that barbados and ocean swim is like no one's ever swum in there that ocean before it's just this remote part of the atlantic ocean and that was like it's kind of, it cool because you kind of felt like a pioneer but there's also you know, so much uncertainty like you don't know what the sharks are going to be like you don't know if you're going to get stung by jellyfish like i had really bad experience with box jellyfish in barbados where i had to go to hospital and like didn't think i was going to make it um <clears throat> and now i'm in that same body of water i'm like doing this like crazy 56 hour, 50 60 hour um swim and yeah, yeah this, there were so many variables in that swim and so many uncertainties um like, man i love the day and yeah. it's such a, it was such a cool experience, like to have, to share that with other people on the on the boat. We had twelve people come with us, and like we we're really close still. Like, and I, I get text messages all the time from our group saying like that was crazy. Like, still like, like my friend Mandy, who's on, she's been on all my rows in Barbados, and she's my training partner there. She's like, text me yesterday, and she's like, man, do you remember that sunset like on the second day? And like, it was unreal. And uh, yeah, it's nice yeah. to share these experiences with these awesome people. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing as well, that 
you got to remember when when you're in that solitude space of just like getting on with it and you, i'm sure you had plenty of those in your swim you've got to remember that you've chosen to do it so the choice that you've made is going to be a good one for not just you but also the other people around you that are also supporting you because i think what a lot of people forget and it's something i took from ross edgley's book is that yeah he may have swam around the uk but the people on the boat the people cooking his meals the people riding you know sailing the boat and yeah. everything else the support crew work just as hard if not harder just to keep you safe and alive doing your doing your doing your exhibitions and so you know there's a lot of work and and uh you know support and and um you know camaraderie that goes into these things right yeah yeah it's, it's amazing and um you need that support to get you through mm. i've been so i've been so blessed with having support like um my even my career like my business partner like you just I, like two years ago, I told them that like I don't want to run the company that we were running anymore. I just because I was spending so much time overseas and training. I was like, let me please like don't pay me a salary anymore. I just like work on contract basis. And he was just like, do it. Like go and do it. Like go pursue your dreams. And, like we met swimming. Like when we we met from from the state of Gibraltar together. And then we ended up starting a company in San Francisco together. So he's obviously super invested and he loves the fact that I'm doing it. And he's amazing swimmer in his own right. And um, so here's like, I have that support on the career side. I have a support on the charity side from Kevin and like the other board members. Um, um, and the training side, I always have people to train with. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, it feels like, I mean, to your, one of your questions earlier, like um, you, you need like to have this family come with you for it. Um, especially when you're doing all these kind of high level, like crazy kind of 50, 60 hour swims and, crazy ocean rise and like you need to have that like family who comes with you for it and supports you but they also for what i'm what i'm taking away from this whole conversation is that people buy into you as the person doing these incredible expeditions and endurance athlete events rather than necessarily your ego of doing them yourself you know people buy into the fact that you are so in love with completing these tasks for an amazing cause that you have the drive and the passion and the energy to keep going back again and again to doing these things even when you fail like when you did the circumnavigation of barbados it doesn't matter you did 27 hours in but you got out and you said no i'm coming back to do it again like that's just that you know if if i was standing there listening to you say that i think you're mental you're crazy but then you go off and do it again and you prove it and i think people buy into that that passion that yeah. you drive yourself forward with and and therefore then they get on board and become your family because of it as well as all the support yeah. i'm sure that you you know you have through social media and the discovery channel um i think it's i think it's awesome and i think you know you've as, as i said at the beginning you've you've definitely created something that can live on longer than if you stop doing your swims you, you know i'm sure there'll be other people that would want to take over doing some oh, work yeah. for, for the charity etc it's amazing yeah, no, with the charity, it's it's been such a success. Um, just having so much amazing support from Kevin. We have a new chairman, <coughs> Dan Sachs, who's a you know also a partner, one of the, the top consult management consulting firms, and uh, and uh, yeah, we have we have that amazing um, amazing support. And on the charity side, we we were actually raised a lot more money just through the projects that we run now because we've been doing it for so long, and people like our donors like they know that. We will completely volunteer, and all the money is going straight to the directly to the projects on the ground, and the results are like instantaneous and tangible. And so we raise more money these days um, just by going to donors and say, "Look, so we're doing this project. Can you can you donate?" And um, so we still we obviously still use a sporting events to like raise to raise awareness and like get a lot more people involved and spread the word. But like a lot of the, uh, the charity has been successful because we have this um, the track record um, and we have great great leadership and accountability. 
Um, I just, yeah, you were, you were talking about um, the support the other day, like, sorry, just now, um, I as I mentioned this girl, Christina, who she's local, local Bayesian. Um, I met her once. I was before, a long time ago, before my first um, around the island swim. And I just noticed she was taking photos of me. <laughs> and, uh, but I heard about it. I knew who she was. She was like, she runs, she runs the Open Waters Festival, swimming festival there. And I just, we just started chatting and we came like friends. And now we're like, now we're like best buds. She like runs my whole life in Barbados and does all my like PR on a volunteer basis. Um, and she's the person like that I, I trust a lot and she's on the ground, like especially um, she does so much of my logistics and like for the, like for example, the Barbados and Lucia swim, because our Cuba Florida swim was canceled. We had three weeks then to plan Barbados and Lucia swim in the same timeline. She organized the whole thing. Like I was in bloody Scotland, like rowing and she was doing all the work on the ground in Barbados, like organizing everything from scratch, like crew wow. and boats and like visas and it's great. You're in a different country. <laughs> um, and, uh, and she just did it all. Like, and then, um, the first time the second time around Barbados like when I was when I made it like I was I remember, I remember swimming past the place that I got out the time before where I failed and I had, I had some really negative thoughts like suddenly because this is where I failed the last time I have to do this last bit of the swim it's going to be dark and it's the second night and I'm sleep deprived <laughs> and then, uh, then Christina like gets suddenly I wasn't expecting this Christina gets in, gets in a kayak and kayaks I didn't even know she was on the boat I think she just arrived um, to to help out, like switch crew. She gets on the kayak and it kayaks out to me. And suddenly I'm looking at her and like, like they had it, suddenly I did have one. There's only like negative part of that whole swim, the successful time. I was like, I thought I thought I might like stop, you know. I was and I, as soon as, but as soon as I had that thought, I was like, my head was like, no, I'm gonna keep going. And then I saw Christina and I was like, there's no way in hell if I go to her. And say so, I might think you know about getting out. There's no way in hell she'd even like let me near the boat. Like she would just like keep like going like taking the boat away and like you bloody swimming this thing. Like I'll probably argue with her for like five hours and like it didn't seem worth it. So I was like, I'll just keep going. <laughs> um, and then uh, and then on the Barbados and Lucius. So, um, so that was that was the second time around Barbados where she she pretty much I mean, didn't get me through, but she really helped me in that difficult situation. And Barbados to Saint Lucia, one of the hardest parts about that swim was the the water temperatures. Obviously, it's warm in the Caribbean, but there'd been four days of like no wind and really hot water, hot temperature. And I'm used to swimming at about 32 degrees, which is extremely hot for um, for water. Like it's as hot as seawater gets, and suddenly the water was like 32 and a half degrees centigrade, which is it's like bath water. And as you can imagine, like as being a swimmer, like you get up to like higher than 29, which is like a pool, I think, and it gets, you get really exhausted very fast. And luckily, I've been training in the Gulf of Mexico for the swim, so I was used to kind of swimming at like high temperatures, but not for this long, and obviously. Um, and I saw my speed came down, and I was like through the second day when it was like at its worst, I was completely dazed and confused, you know, from like 1 p.m., 2 p.m. And I eventually, I kind of like I was losing consciousness, but I, I didn't tell anybody. And then suddenly the boat stopped for one and a half an hour feeds and I went to the boat. And Christina had her first break of like two hours. She hadn't seen the, like the previous two hours and she came back on deck. She thought something was wrong and she came up and looked at me. And obviously I have a crew of 12, but suddenly she comes out on deck and she looks at me and she's like, what the hell's wrong with Cameron? And like, and she starts like screaming at the crew. It's like, I can't believe he didn't say anything or do anything. Like he looks exhausted. Like he doesn't look like he's even conscious. I didn't feel like I was conscious at the time. And uh, and it took her to notice that. And like I was, I was pretty much done. I, I don't think I could have swum anymore. But then like suddenly that that's brought the ice out, and I started feeding every like ten minutes, which is like more ice and ice in my cap, ice in my speedo, like just so much ice, just to like cool me down. And she eventually got me through the next four hours, three hours until sunset. 
Um, and she saved that swim. Like, I wouldn't have made it if, it, if she hadn't come out and said, like, like and realized what a situation I was in. Um, since then, now she's, she's obviously she's a part of the charity. She runs marketing and communications for the charity, and uh, she does incredible work with, like, everything PR-wise and newsletters. And, um, yeah, it takes, like, it takes people like that to, uh, like, at least for me, like, to kind of to to be successful, you know. I think that that's amazing. I love that story. She sounds like an incredible person and someone who really believes in you and also the things that you're doing as well, which is great. It leads me nicely actually into one of my last questions, which is who inspires you? I think, you know, I get, I get a lot of inspiration from, um, from people like, um, like my role models is someone like Kevin, who I recently spoke about. So it's not a sporting figure. It's, um, like Kevin, incredibly inspiring guy. He so Kevin Jennings. So I think I mentioned that he um, he worked. He was Obama's one of his main fundraisers in his 2008 campaign, um, and he worked in the White House as Assistant Secretary of Education. Um, but to get there is the is the most incredible journey because he grew up very poor in um, Northern California, but in a very rural area. And his dad was a preacher who passed away when he was really young. His mother was a school teacher, so I'm making a lot of money. So he grew up in poverty, and um, and he knew he was gay from a really young age. And um, obviously went to high school, the local public school, and was bullied to the point he almost killed, committed suicide. He's incredibly an incredibly intelligent person, and he eventually managed to get into Harvard, and then spent um, did his undergrad at Harvard, graduated top of his class, and then became a history teacher in um, in like uh, one of the, um, the schools in like central in like New York City, and a uh, you know, very kind of dis- I think it's a very disadvantaged school. This is in the early 80s, and, um, and he hadn't come out as gay to his students, but eventually did. And like, he eventually became this teacher and this educator, and he set up a charity called Glisten, um, which is one of the, the largest like social rights charities in the world, uh, nonprofits in the world at the moment. And um, he started that himself, as well as numerous charities. And so he's, and he just basically built his career about um, being like an extremely nice person like he's the most connected person i've ever met in my life which is great because he's like helping to run the charity um but he's like he's gone that he's gotten there just for being the most genuine and nice guy who has like such an appreciation for life and and helping people less less fortunate um and when you speak to him you just have this feeling that he's such a generous person and so it's guys like it's people like that that have inspired me the most um i think in my life because obviously i do sporting stuff but like kevin does so much stuff like to help change the world in a way you know um and it's obviously all related um yeah it's to count him as a friend is absolutely incredible and to have him running it my charity was, was phenomenal like um very blessed fantastic um, very inspiring person yeah. and final question which you may have already answered in in sort of during this talk but what is your what is your impossible goal what's the thing that is kind of at the moment in your head a little bit out of reach but but granted your your track history could potentially be something that happens in the not too distant future yeah so I have, and i've spoken about it's a cool which is uh the lake from 180 kilometer lake alpine lake um in fresh water or slightly saline water um that's obviously that's my next that's a goal that like really like i think about a lot but then i actually have a, a future goal um that i've I'm working with a couple of people um it's a rowing expedition um that's something I've actually thought about for a long time, but took a break from those kind of like that thinking for a bit. But I can't actually I can't actually mention what it is. I think 
because it's too early and I haven't really spoken told anybody else about it. <laughs> Not even my, my mom. So uh, yeah, it's Fair quite enough. a dangerous expedition. It's, it's a long-term expedition, um, but it's something I'm, I'm really excited about. But I think it, it'll probably, it's probably two years away, probably two and a half years away of um, setting off. And it'll be like probably like a three-year expedition. Wow. Yeah, Watch so this space. Can, yeah. <laughs> you probably get a picture of what it is. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely, I think with these goals, like if you find one that just sits in your brain, for long enough you have to make it happen you have to yeah. like eventually materialize it absolutely yeah. manifests and, and stays there but man yeah. cameron i've i've absolutely loved this chat i think it's been it's been eye-opening it's been amazing and i've i've found that you have uh, surpassed my expectations of what your uh, exhibitions and adventures have been like since you know from what i've read and what i've heard about from from friends uh, of yours um so thank you for coming on the show i really really appreciate your time Oh, thanks, Jack. As well. It's been great chatting to you, man. I really, I really enjoyed the chat and I uh, look forward to uh, keeping in touch. And, yeah. Where can people find you if they wanted to learn more about any of the stuff you've been up to, the Impossible Row, your your charity? What, what's the best place to go to? Um, yeah, so the charity, um, the the website's the obunyachallenge.com, uh, U-B-U-N-Y. It's a, sorry, U-B-U-N-Y-E, obunyachallenge.com. Um, the, the word actually means team or togetherness in the local um language uh, also um as the eastern cape language um i mean yeah that's brilliantchallenge.com it just tells you about the charity and it's kind of it's almost like we, all the athletic side is also like showcased there and like, we have a couple of people that are also do athletic stuff for the charity so it's all this stuff in there too so you get a picture of the athletic stuff but also what we've done on the ground and the kind of the projects we've been able to uh, to fund that we're currently fundraising for and then on you know like Christina like helps me on the social media side. Um and uh yeah, so Cam underscore Bunya is my um Instagram and then Facebook is Cam Abunya, Cam Abunya. Um yeah, those are pretty much the channels that I use. Um and if you subscribe to the Bunya Challenge newsletter, we um we send out like, you know, semi annual reports on what we're doing on the ground and also like the uh, athletic stuff. Fantastic. I will link all of that in the show notes below. And I'm sure that if anyone's listening to this and wants to reach out and uh, ask for some tips on how to do their first channel swim or maybe their first ocean row, I'm sure they'll be in touch with you uh, in due course. But mate, it's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to seeing you in many more exhibitions over the years to come. Yeah, thanks, Jack. And good luck for your next Ironman. Thank you very much. <laughs>